welcome to our 38th Scent the Month in Motion monthly podcasting forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Tanisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging this special country from which we are live streaming, the traditional owners of this Buja on which we gather, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge their ongoing connection to both this land and also the seas and waters that surround us. The marine environment and industry are both undergoing significant transformation. This will affect what we see on the horizon, how we use the ocean and how we move around it. Today we focus on the emerging technologies and trends that will affect our recreation and economy, including transport, infrastructure, communication and the ecology. Western Australia has a unique capability in this innovative sector, both in terms of technical skills and capability, but also in R&D and lived experience. Today we are joined by some exceptional leaders in their field through a sponsorship with Blue Gravity, a collaborative partnership between the Department of Jobs, Tourism, Science and Innovation's New Industry Fund, the City of Coburn, City of Fremantle and For Blue. And Andrew, as Director of For Blue, is going to be first on our panel this morning um, to set some scene um, for us. Um, for those of you who haven't met Andrew before, he's Managing Director of For Blue and is at the centre of the Blue Economy Innovation in Western Australia. His experience as a leader and innovator are complemented by training, qualifications and research, combining rigorous scientific inquiry and care for human development. He has worked across the globe, uh, including regional Western Australia, Scandinavia, the UK, Asia, the USA and Canada as a researcher, facilitator and consultant, including attracting more than $20 million in funding and investment to client ventures. Andrew, over that extensive career, and particularly in the last few years, you've been very close to some of the most innovative technology and growth across the blue economy. I'm just really interested in setting the scene initially to see over that period, what are you seeing as some of the key drivers of some of the change in the sector? Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be here with you guys and yourself, Danisha. Um, one of the things um, we're working with clients and thinking about the blue economy and technology is thinking about what's the size of the market. Um, and it's interesting to consider that, um, you know, 70% of the earth is ocean, 70% mm -hmm. of Australia's territory is ocean. Um, and interestingly, 50% of the earth's service is actually in international waters. So it's not in any nation's jurisdiction. Yeah. So people think a lot and we're paying a lot of attention to um, SpaceX or the, you know, Mars, but we've got this whole planet or half of our planet is basically uncharted territory. Mm. Um, now, and with yeah, increasing population and demands on the Earth's resources, I think a lot of people are sort of looking in that direction. And technologies um, such as autonomy, robotics and AI, um, technologies such as new sources of um, renewable energy um, and also the drive to, um, say, protect 30% of the oceans by 2030. I think the intersection of these technology trends, um, shifts in social values um, and population mean that there are a lot of opportunities in the, in the ocean. And even though I've been involved in this field for a while, um, you know, my original undergraduate degree was in marine science. It's only in the last six months that I've really understood how radically different the ocean is going to look 
um, even in the next decade. Mm. Literally, we will see on the horizon um, more wind turbines, um, huge um, uh, seaweed aquaculture farms, many, many more autonomous drones, um, quite, quite different um, vessels. Um, and underwater will literally be different because of, you know, sea level rise, acidification, increased mm. storminess. So I think what we, when we look out to the sea, it's going to be radically different looking and I think it will be a much, much more significant part of our economy, like locally in Fremantle, in Western Australia, but also globally. Um, and, yeah, those, those three major trends around digital technologies, um, the drive towards decarbonisation, but also the commitment to having a deeper care for our ocean I think they're three major trends um, that are driving yeah, a range of different technologies um, and a lot of it is going to end up being very different, very different vessels um, with different capabilities mm. and very different infrastructure in places that we hadn't thought it could be before. I'd love to unpack so much of that as we go through, including whether we may actually be seeing cities over the yeah, ocean that, as we start that, to... That is, <laughs> I mean, one of, one of our clients we were sort of joking and we're like, oh, actually, you know, one of your sort of target audiences is really, um, you know, sort of people preparing for the apocalypse, as in your technology would enable an arc. And he was like, yes, as in you could stay at sea indefinitely. Yeah. Um, you could live there sustainably and there could be a thousand other people with you on that vessel, never having to touch onto land. And we're like, oh, wow. Okay. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I did an urban design project um, as part of my study at the moment on whether we could raise, you know, Atlantis from the sea and, and actually have, you know, living spaces on it. But there's also so much around new energy. And I think that idea of looking at a perspective of how our oceans will physically look both above the water and below the water is such a mind-blowing kind of concept to wrap our heads around. But thank you for that. And we will come back to just about all of those things that you raised as we go through. I'd like now just to introduce Joshua um, Portlock from uh, Electro Aereo um, and Electronautic. Josh has dozens of years of experience developing and commercialising electric propulsion and autonomous systems. And I'm excited to say in 38 podcasts, we've never had anyone bring in a prop, Josh. So it's very exciting that we have one uh, to decorate the table this morning. Um, as Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of Electro Aereo and Electronautic, he's an entrepreneur with a strong technical background in robotics engineering who has specialised in electric propulsion technologies. You're an innovative leader of multidisciplinary design, optimised aerodynamics, electric propulsion and control systems with numerous national and international awards under your belt. Um, you founded uh, your company to help safely propel the sustainable aviation industry and through developing commercialising electrical charging systems for aircraft, which you've then explored into, uh, into the ocean world, which is the focus of today um, in watercraft propulsion. Asking the question, why push a draggy hull through the water when you can fly over it in hydrofoils? Um, the Wave Drive Active Stability Controlled Hydrofoil Electric Propulsion System, you're testing me at 7.30 this morning, um, has achieved more and revolutioning the watercraft industry. Josh, I'm going to start with that very question and I think it feeds a little bit into the big picture um, that Andrew introduced us thinking the world is changing at some point in time you said i'm not going to just sit in the hull on the water i'm going to fly across the water 
that very question, what does it take to take that thinking from just being global in the sky kind of idea to taking on such a well-established market and changing it so dramatically. Can you talk us through a bit of that journey? Sure. For me, um, I was focused on aviation, background in drones and, and electric uh, flight. But when I was asked, the backstory is that I was asked from UWA, could you develop a really cool watercraft for us? Because like we've, you know, we've dabbled with electrifying jet skis and that wasn't that you know impressive performance. And I said, well, yeah, we could actually. And I was sort of you know doing back of the napkin calcs. I'm like... Well, I know aviation really well. I know flying. I know wings. I'm like hydrofoils are very efficient. Running the calcs, I'm going, whoa, this is, this is right. Like it can be like four times more efficient to fly over waves than to go in them. I'm like, why haven't people done this before, especially electrically? Mm. And you look at it and you go, well, actually it's a convergence of technology that makes now the best time to do it. Because it's not that there haven't been hydrofoils. And as you've probably seen, yeah. a lot of uh, um, sailing has gone to hydrofoiling. Yes, absolutely. And there have been some traditional like 50-year-old ships that were hydrofoiled but with internal combustion engines. So there was huge challenges with these big engines and drive shafts and lubrication and retraction and like complexity that just made them not very commercially viable. And then the other side of the coin is electrification is steadily getting better as you've seen with electric vehicles getting you know, competitively uh, ranged, capable as a, a petrol car. So really the timing is perfect for the convergence of electrification and hydrofoiling. So it was more of seizing that opportunity. I already was very immersed in electrification and I understood fluid dynamics enough to know my way around a, a wing. And I was like, well, actually, if we go back to basics, if we go, all right, don't just take a hydrofoil and an electric motor and, and try and shoehorn together. How do you tightly integrate this convergence of technology to get the best solution, the most disruptive change of technology? And that's the result of three years of engineering and hard work and sweat into refining what we call the wave drive. So and the last analogy I'd use is that um, convergence of the technologies aren't that obvious until they are obvious, meaning that like it's at first you're like, why would I want a computer on a, in a handheld device in my pocket? That seems ridiculous, <laughs> right? But everyone like a decade or more ago, maybe 20 years ago now, was like, I don't need a computer and a like phone in one, right? But, and, and other people, technologists were even like, that'll never happen. There's no way we'll get this, you know, mainframe computer onto a handheld device. So it took innovators like Steve Jobs and others, um, there's lots of people to credit for that other than Steve even, that made the technology that made it possible. So made batteries high enough energy density to get all day in battery life and made screens, you know, user interfaceable with capacitive touch. So those convergence of those technologies of battery tech and um, touchscreen interfaces was what made the iPhone and the and modern smartphone, mm. which we all just take for granted now, um, possible. And then it shifted the mindset of people. It was like, well, not only is it possible, it's an essential part of my life now. Yeah. Sadly, a little too much sometimes, right? But it is such an enabling tool that people just take for granted now that two decades ago was unthought of. So, so we, we see the same thing happening with electric hydrofoil watercraft that like for now and still get a few people like, that'll never work. Batteries aren't good enough. But we're like, well, <laughs> just saying do you like my naysaying narratives? I'm having this flashback to one of my very early days. I'm going to show my age now, but one of my very early days at work where I was putting something through the fax machine right, and fax, one yep. of the ladies at the work said, oh, head office have just sent this thing and we're not meant to be using the fax machine now. We're meant to be writing it and sending it on the computer. And I'm like, but why? This is so easy. Watch it just go through. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, there's definitely um, So clearly I'm not there. in the true questioning area that I should be. Um, but that takes also when you are at such... I mean, yeah, it may, maybe for you it makes logical sense to merge these technologies, but you're still 
challenging a number of mindsets. And from those mindsets, you have to get investors, you have to get other people to come along on your journey. Yeah. How do you do that bit of it? Yeah, I mean, so I'm, clearly you ask the question, you answer it, but then you've got to take all of these other oh, people right. with That's you. The, 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 uh, story, the story goes that um, it's, uh, you know, 1% idea and 99% perseverance of yes. making other people believe the idea. And that's the, definitely the journey that's been. And I think it's getting easier than it used to be. Like I was in drones 15 years ago and trying to explain to people that drones were going to change the world of, you know, mining, surveying and, and 3D modeling back then was like, no way, drones mm. won't do that. So there was a lot of naysaying in that early industry. It's been a bit of naysaying in electric aviation as well and a little bit in electric uh, watercraft. But the proof's in the pudding. Once we start, once we have been over the last few years flying this over the waves and using a quarter of the power and getting four times the range for the same size battery, it's like, okay, well, now you're outperforming the petrol equivalent you know, boat mm, mm. Um, in, in its... Uh, and a big question for you, does it make as much noise as a water ski? Not any noise. Oh, That's the beauty of it. Above water, no noise. And no. below water, just enough noise for the fish to get out of the way. Uh, excellent. That's good to hear. <laughs> so good to hear. Both worlds. <laughs> and but I'll yeah. come back and explore a few of those themes. I'd like to just introduce Chris, um, who has joined us this morning. Um, at late notice, and I'm very, very grateful that you're on the panel this morning, Chris. Um, sales and marketing manager for Echo Marine Group. Um, Chris holds 24 years of shipbuilding design, project management, sales and marketing experience, spanning all three of Western Australia's internationally renowned shipyards, from Austal to Silver Yachts and now Echo Yachts. You've got such a strong design and technical background. Um, you've been overseeing the cutting edge of change in custom-built luxury vessels that traverse all over the globe and are part of the different sea and world that um, Andrew mentioned earlier. You're WA Chair of Superyacht Australia and a long-standing Superyacht industry enthusiast, um, and you have been championing extraordinarily strongly uh, along with the Chamber, both locally, nationally and abroad, to uh, finally get our Superyacht economic strategy up and almost going, Chris. Um, but we're talking today about, I guess, your actual bread and butter and the life of what you've been doing over the last 24 years. You've seen a lot of change, particularly in luxury vessels. Um, what is on the horizon for blue and ocean-based industries in terms of sustainability as well as harnessing ocean energy? And what are your thoughts on what systems will be driving beautiful vessels that we can see on the screen and their development into the future? First of all, good morning and thank you for having me. Um, great introduction. Um, I think there's a lot of commonality between what you do and, and what we do. Um, so our company, Echo Marine Group, uh, are involved with uh, commercial and luxury and also some defence-related projects. Um, one of our leading areas is the manufacture of custom super yachts. Uh, and as you can see on the um, screen behind us here, one of the uh, – that, that's basically our um, largest project mm -hmm. to date. It's an 84-metre trimaran super yacht, uh, diesel-electric propulsion. Um, so this, I guess, Lend, when I say similar, uh, we're talking about, you know, different hull forms, different propulsion types and, and this type of thing. I think one thing that's really interesting about uh, Australia and particularly Western Australia and, and near Fremantle here down in Henderson is companies like Austal and Silviots and also now Echo um, have always uh, in their areas been at the leading edge globally um, in hull technology and aluminium construction and things like that. And that was born originally out of, um, with the ferries, for example, that Austal were doing, about the operators of those ferries wanting to have uh, very hydrodynamically efficient vessels with a, with a good payload 
um, but uh, as lower uh, at a high speed, but also as low a fuel burn as possible. Um, primarily not so much for the environmental aspects back then when it first started, but more for the cost of fuel mm. and the profitability of the company. Um, now where we're at now is we have clients like the one that we built this vessel for, a Singaporean family, that um, really understood um, the benefits that come from advanced hull forms and alternative propulsion packages and whatnot. So just to give everybody a little bit of a, a frame of reference, yeah. that vessel there's just under 3,000 gross tonnes volume. Um, if you had the same uh, size of vessel, might be a few metres longer if it was a monohull, but a steel monohull with traditional diesel propulsion um, that the European companies tend to build, um, this one here requires approximately 35 to 40% less installed power with the associated fuel reduction mm. and emissions reduction that goes with that. And we've achieved that using an alternative Australian designed aluminium trimaran hull mm -hmm. and we've combined it with existing technology in a clever way, which comes back to your point about converging technologies. We've, we've, we've got the Australian designed trimaran hull, the aluminium construction know-how, um, we've used a diesel electric system, but we've done that in a different way to how it would normally be done as well. We split the system across the three hulls. We've got um, a variable pitch uh, Rolls-Royce propeller system and a three-speed electric motors, and then they're fed by up to six diesel generators, depending on how, which ones you choose to run. So you can minimise your um, fuel burn, let's say, depending on what you're going to do at the time with your house loads and your cruising speed. So you might just say run one or two generators, for example, rather than all. Mm. Then you choose the optimum speed to run the electric motors, low, medium or high. And then right at the tail end of the vessel with the variable pitch propellers, a little bit like turboprop planes, you can feather the blades on the propellers to get maximum thrust from the power that you're putting into them. So all of that combined as a system gives you that you know, near on 40% improvement. It's truly amazing. And, and if, we, if, if we take that a step further, which is, I guess, where we are now looking to go as a company, there's a couple of things we're looking at. First of all, we're working on a, a 40 metre um, design for a trimaran motor yacht that will be um, partially foiling. Um, and that'll lift the vessel about one third out of the water. So it reduces the wettest, wetted surface area of the hull and it makes it more efficient so you can go faster or burn less fuel at speed. Um, and then the other thing that we're looking at as well is augmenting the overall trimaran platform with um, things like, you know, hydrogen fuel cells and solar and, and other things like that because that will help. Um, it, it's, those technologies aren't mature enough yet to power a large vessel like this globally because there's not the refueling stations around the world for it yet. Mm. It'll probably happen one day mm. but um, at least if we can augment the existing systems with these new technologies for the house loads so for instance you can run silently overnight without burning fuel mm. or you can leave harbour without you know burning fuel and all those sorts of things and then one day you know when the f refueling stations are around the place mm. then we can you know go the go mm. the whole hog basically. And Chris when you come up obviously so many components to the technology driven design that we're talking about here. Do you, again, do you pitch all of those ideas to the client or does the client kind of trust you to do some R&D in the background and deliver something that's truly out of the box for them? 
look, it really depends on the client and who they surround themselves with. So the, I guess the, 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 the projects that are most cutting edge uh, or, you know, like for instance, this one behind us or the other 40 metre that we're working on, these are clients that already understand the benefits of uh, multi-holes and, you know, hybrid or, you know, diesel electric propulsion systems and they're keen to push the boundaries. Mm. And one, one of the things with the soup yacht industry is, you know, whilst, you know, some people view it in different ways, it does help to push um, technology forward because these clients have the money to invest and take the risks and, and, you know, try and do innovative things like this. And then ultimately then that has a way of flowing through to, to other oh, sectors okay. of shipbuilding afterwards, you know. Um, but it, so as far as, um, I guess, clientele, um, this is still relatively new technology in the sense that there aren't many of these vessels in the world. There's two of these vessels now over 60 metres in length. Um, this is the only one that's got the diesel electric mm. system that's taken it that step further. And obviously with the last two years of COVID lockdowns and given we only launched that two and a half years ago, we've had very limited time to actually get people on board this vessel and, and show them what it's all about. Um, so it is, a, it is a hard sell at the moment. You know, people are very fixed on this is what a yacht should look like. Mm. Um, so, but we're slowly getting the, the word out. And, and I think over time, you know, as with, you know, the electric boats and things like that, I, I think these things are definitely going to be taken up. It's just a matter of persevering, like you say, it's that 99% perseverance factor. Mm, it's amazing. Um, Joshua, you mentioned the universities, um, and I'll come back to Andrew in a second, but the universities, the, the industry like Chris's that are at the leading edge, where does all of it sort of converge? Are we seeing the thinking and the R&D being done in certain sectors or is it really across the board? Yeah, definitely there's some good university attention on electrification, sustainability, and that's a good driver for research. Um, I do find it still takes innovators like ourselves mm -hmm. to sort of take that risk to actually transition it to commercial because, for instance, the discussion early on with UWA was like, yeah, we just want to do this to show off electrification. It's like, well, I want to do it to actually make real boats yeah, and sell yeah. them. You know? So yeah. there's a different motivation there, yeah, you know, absolutely. like um, the whole, uh, you know, adding to the sum knowledge of, of uh, papers um, yeah. is their approach and our yeah like make real things and change the world yeah so it is a balance between you know academia and and commercialization but it is a good synergy too because mm. you do get great researchers out of university wanting to actually transition into commercial like real world practical mm. development and engineering and Andrew, from your perspective, you deal with so many different stakeholders in this field. Mm. Is it a collaborative sort of change effort or how, because you obviously are responsible in some ways for bringing together so many of these different parties. Mm. How does this change kind of happen? Is it that there are just amazing innovators leading the edge or do you think it's going to take a combined effort to make all of this come to fruition? Yeah, a, a couple of factors. One, um, one is it's helpful if it's really sexy. Yes. Like <laughs> the... <laughs> Yeah, even the quality of the photography of like White Rabbit and things like that, it, it just really, that really makes a big difference. Mm. Um, yeah, because if and, you were down in the engine showing the propulsion, probably yeah, not yeah, quite yeah. so exciting. Um, it also helps that, um, you know, that people can play with things or they, they sort of get it from another field. So, um, you know, I surf, I foil, I've kite surfed. And the, the whole, what, when you look out, say, in, into the, 
recreationally mm. in, in Western Australia. The, the difference from, say, 20 years ago, the number of watercraft people are using to catch waves is just sort of infinitely more diverse. Um, but back, back to the in industry side, yes, it does re take people to sort of progress individual innovations and a lot of that hard work is sort of done um, you know, in private or in universities or within companies. Um, but one of the things we think is really important and so we're, we're running a forum on the 22nd of September around exactly this, which is what's the leading edge of um, engineering ocean solutions but across different fields. Mm -hmm. So we've seen people working in um, subsea um, robotics and autonomy um, where they've had some real insights that are relevant to the people working on offshore wave energy that are also really relevant to people um, working in, you know, more efficient um, uh, ferry designs and hull designs. Mm. Um, there are also really, there's a bit of overlap there with, um, you know, AI-driven software to schedule and organise the maintenance of vessels, mm. um, but that actually got developed in um, the maintenance schedules for um, mining projects and big assets out on mines. Mm -hmm. So getting those people together to sort of peek over the fence and see what's happening in other sectors or other companies, that can also be a moment of sort of convergence or insight. Yeah, of those technologies. And to sort of really build, um, I think, confidence in a whole sector that can help attract um, more investment and more talent um, that really pushes these things along because, um, yeah, the competition for money, attention and, and talented people is a big constraint on these things. Um, I think particularly right now in Western Australia with, mm. with lots of other sectors sort of booming. Um, but, yeah, that, it, that it's sexy, that it's trialable or that you can relate to it, um, that the industry are sort of learning from each other, you know, and that, it, that we are conscious that it, it is competing with other sectors. You know those those factors will will all um, will all affect how how quickly this advances. Mm. It's interesting as you were talking. I'd be interested, Chris, in your perspective on this. Um, you know, they often say the creative industries in Western Australia is so cutting edge because we are so isolated that we almost have the free space to come up with ideas and build things. Um, you travel the world at sort of marine shows and boat shows. Um, what are you seeing? Do you think WA does hold its own in terms of driving some of this technology or where do we sit kind of on a global scale? Um, absolutely. And it's, and it's not just in the luxury side but with commercial shipbuilding, for mm. example. And I, and I go back to that whole sort of um, fast ferry industry with Austal and also in Cat down in Tasmania. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the multi-hulls and the trimarans and, and uh, the big catamaran fast ferries that are doing 40 knots with, you know, 800 to 1,000 passengers and 200 cars on board, you know, that's oh, okay. cutting-edge technology. Mm. Um, and, you know, the two main manufacturers of those really large high-speed aluminium ferries are both Australian companies. Mm. You know, a lot of the tank testing for those companies has been done down at the um, Naval um, Architecture or Marine Institute down in um, Tasmania. Okay, yeah. um, and, you know, a lot of the uh, engineers and naval architects and designers and tradesmen and, or people for that matter that have come out of those shipyards have then gone on to companies like Silver Yachts and Echo Marine Group and, and so forth. So 
um, you know, I think, yes, um, definitely we are at the forefront. Um, you know, there'll always be a company in a country somewhere that pops up and with a new idea and gets a little ahead a little bit. But I think if you look at the last, you know, 20 years as a whole, yes, Australia's definitely been at the forefront. And, and I think the proof is in the pudding where, you know, like for instance now, Austell have managed to successfully set up in the US and are now building, you know, these multi-hull, high-speed craft, 120 metres long, um, as literal combat ships for the US Navy. You know, they, they don't mess around. They mm. do their due, due diligence, you know, for the most part. And they must have been pretty impressed with what they saw in an Australian company to, to back that with mm. taxpayers' money in the States. So, um, yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Joshua, um, in terms of taking a product like yours, um, and again, isolation of Western Australia and, you know, changing industries, have you had a positive response sort of globally or are you more domestically focused? Oh, definitely globally in the sense that we can't ignore the population density ratios, but I think we're in a best place in the world to innovate. And I'd use the analogy of um, scarcity um, breeds um, novelty in the sense that if you don't have a lot of resources or a lot of people or a lot of um, access to capital and whatnot, you have to do things on the cheap. You have to skimp somewhat and be re resourceful. It's probably the right best word for it. Um, and being resourceful means you've probably optimised it to a lot more cost sensitivity than, say, a overfunded Silicon Valley tech startup that's throwing millions of dollars at the problem and, you know, got a much, um, much digger hole to, <laughs> deep out, to dig out of oh, yeah. uh, in, uh, in debt or, should I say, capital that you've now got to justify the return on investment of. So what I'd say is when while it sucks sometimes not having access to as much capital, it's forced us to be really lean, really efficient, really like punching above our weight. And we've spent three years innovating this on a shoestring budget and then when we go and actually show it to the world, they go, whoa, you've done all that with that little? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So you almost get a bit of a respect, bit of a pat on the back for achieving so much with so little that when you do present it to North Americans, as an example, they go, whoa, we want this like yesterday. How can we help you commercialize it? So we've had a very positive response on commercializing in North America. That's the largest demographic for personal watercraft and just a huge amount of capital being flooded into the electrification space. So we do think there's a obvious huge growth story in the US and you can use other analogies like Tridium, the most successful car charging company in Australia went um, public through a SPAC in the billion dollar valuation. So they were hitting a ceiling in the tens of millions of dollars here in Australia, go to America, you're suddenly worth a hundred times more. It's wow. insane, right? So yeah. the growth opportunities there in North America and even Europe love electrification of watercraft. And you look at all those islands that really already use watercraft to get around, why wouldn't they want a hydrofoil, right? So mm. those are our biggest markets, but that doesn't hurt that this is a great beta market, like a test market. You know, we can mm. really prove it here, you know, on the Fremantle River and around Rottnest and Hamilton Island and all beautiful places to operate watercraft in Western Australia as a reference model for how we could scale 10x, 100x that internationally. And a range of different ocean conditions too, yeah, I yeah. guess, around uh, We have really continent. good weather all, all yeah. around too. So. <laughs> That's other technologies that are, you talked about converging technology. Um, one of the things that we're seeing a massive change in is obviously satellite technology and communications. Uh, Chris mentioned that, you know, to make some of these electrical or hydrocarbon kind of ideas work, we need fueling stations around the globe to make them work. How do we see those, I guess, external global systems driving some of this change? Do you want to have a comment on that? Um, yeah, probably, probably a, a couple of the big drivers and perhaps a strength in Western Australia is our isolation. So we're actually 
you know, a world leader in remote operations, mm-hmm. um, you know, mostly to do with, with mining, but that's also extended to um, needing those communications for um, how we might patrol or monitor our borders. And yes. so being able to communicate well across long distances, um, including now for aut- autonomous um, you know, underwater drones, um, yeah, that that's going to be really critical for achieving, um, say, conservation goals or um, meeting defence requirements or even, um, yeah, the legislation that's sort of driving decarbonisation. Um, an example, perhaps, is that if we're if we're going to commit, or we many people, many organisations and nations are committed to protecting thirty percent of the oceans by twenty thirty. That's a huge area of ocean that to date has not been sort of monitored or managed. Mm. Now, being able to do that um, remotely with autonomous technology will depend um, on, um, you know, really high quality communications. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing some some amazing stuff come out of um, Elon, Elon Musk's um, companies with the, um, with the satellites that were made, uh, enable like amazing internet speeds in the middle of the ocean. Um, but a lot of the, I know we have companies here in Fremantle which are, you know, really figuring out how does that, yeah, but how does that actually practically translate into these applications? Um, so I think the the communication side of things is going to be really important. Um, I'm not sure. I'd be curious to hear from both of you in terms of, I know some, you know, some of the other companies that are that are around here, um, you know, they're very, um, they almost get like real time data from their their vessels that helps optimize the performance. So the ability to communicate and get the data from those vessels um, can mean that you have the same hardware, but it's it's essentially operating much more efficiently because you're you're tweaking it. Um, yeah, and that that will depend on very high quality communications over long distances. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We've really got the Internet of Things approach to our everything we do, from aviation charges through to the electric uh, wave flyer and the wave drive. And so everything that we develop has a modem on it. For now, 4G you know, modems, which are good enough around the, uh, you know, within a few kilometres of the um, shore. But if you are eventually going to operate them optionally piloted or even fully unmanned out into the ocean, there are some amazing satellite links like Starlink uh, coming out for those ocean operations where you'd have direct satellite comms. And even before that, my background in drones, we had 100 kilometer range links that could go direct to aircraft um, to communicate you know, high, high quality video in real time. But the main thing, the main benefit of the Internet of Things for mobility is that you can make the product better over time. So you can, as long as you design the hardware to be future-proof for these software upgrades, you can make the product better and even monetize the fact that you can add features. So when we first launch the Waveflyer, it'll probably be, you know, um, autopilot-assisted, meaning that it'll obviously make sure you don't flip it and and keep you safe. That's fundamentally important. But over time, we'll add features like being able to auto-navigate home so you can enjoy your (laughs) drink while you're cruising back through the same path that you got there. And and even that's a safety feature if you think about it. If you've sort of gotten lost out somewhere and you're like, "Mm, where's home again? Like, what river? I've got like three different... There's like islands in the way. I don't know where I am. So... Oh, the go home button is actually really yeah. a valuable you upgrade. You mean it won't be like trying to learn to sail blindfold as we had to do yeah, back yeah, in the day, you know, right? To feel it with your oh, I know, and on the water, it's actually hard to really know where you are, right? Absolutely. Like, I've been Having even had to in do the middle of the swan, yeah. sometimes like I've 
use the electric surfboards a bit and even in the middle of the swan you're like where am i yeah. <laughs> like uh, so yeah the, those sort of things will just help improve the product over time and um and yeah like uh it might be something as simple as like an advanced jump mode like we've yeah. toyed with the idea of like yeah we'll keep it safe and and tame but some people who get pretty ambitious with their wave flyer over time probably want to jump out of waves and stuff so like we could design an algorithm that helps them like for the cameras and planned actually like jump over a wave and land again smoothly and like so those sort of things can be improved over time because it's all software and and because we were fly by wire from nature from day one the decision we made early on is that we want it to always be software definable wow so, that's yeah. quite amazing chris anything to add on that other than i'm feeling quietly devastated that my own personal ability to read the water will become defunct because there's going to be an ai yeah. doing it for me I don't think we've got any plans soon to be jumping super yachts or crew, crew transfer vessels or things like that over over waves. But at least I know that the possible we, we can put that in the brochure as an option. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think um, if, if I'm to be honest, a lot of this technology that's being spoken about now about automation and monitoring, remote monitoring, things like that, we've actually been doing it here in the WA shipbuilding industry for probably 15 or 20, probably 20 years in fairness. Yeah. Um, and again, to go back to say Austell, for example, where they've got a system called uh, Marine Link that they developed in-house uh, that essentially monitors everything on board, you know, every hatch, every door, you know, engines, generators, uh, power consumption, uh, you know, navigation, you know, slamming of the vessel, like the motions of the vessel so they can determine if the vessel is being operated outside of its um, um, safe operating parameters and things like that if the, an issue arises and things like that. So, and then of course, like companies like ourselves, we've got an in-house um, system called uh, Echo Watch, which is much the same thing, you know, control can control and monitor everything on board and it's all viewable by satellite. So as long as you've got the master's permission for our technician to log in, and the, the, you know, the captain or master on board can see what is being looked at and done and all the rest of it. They can even come in and troubleshoot without the vessel having to come back to shore and things wow. like that. So that's been around actually for quite a while. But I guess the advantage now is that the speed and readiness of those, um, you know, s signals are a lot more dependable with the, you know, with like Starlink and things like mm -hmm. that now. Whereas back in the day, it was more, you know, satellite connection and, you know, the vessel had to be operating in an area where it had satellite coverage. Um, yeah, it's amazing having right. those conversations and I just can't help but think um, even in terms of our business correspondence and media and the stories we share externally are so limited in what we actually explore and that there is so much going on even within our region that we're only scratching the surface to truly even understand what is happening in organisations like all of yours. It's such a fascinating conversation and I'm going to come back to it. I just wanted to see if anyone had any queries from the room. Welcome. Yeah. I have a question uh, for Kelly. Sorry, Carlos, you mentioned different. Hang on, hang on, Dylan. Sorry, Kelly's just the mic doing a lap around the room. <laughs> the camera, just so we can. That's okay. Oh, no, it's just for the podcast, love, so we can hear you. Yeah, yeah, I've got one. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, so Carla from Antaports, um you mentioned different vessels, and um, so what do you mean by different vessels? What What is that you're talking about? Uh, Sorry, we really do need more than one mic. Yeah. <laughs> Just getting your early morning jog going, Cal. Thanks, love. Um, so probably when I say different vessels, it is understanding that um, the future 
will look quite quite different for say um personal watercraft for say recreational commuting versus um the craft that um ports may use um or you know islands may use for sort of short distances versus um the rotness ferry versus um patrol vessels or super yachts or or cruise ships or container ships and many of these different it's it's not like they're all going to go electric or they're all going to be running on ammonia or they'll all be foiling um yeah many of these technologies have specific sort of performance parameters um and so the future will actually look quite divergent mm. you know to date a boat has been a boat and a jet ski hull design has not been you know you know broadly it's like a mini boat almost yeah, yeah yeah broadly it sort of looks the same as a ship yeah. but um yeah, my sense and from the technology and the clients we work with in having these sorts of conversations is that, yeah, for particular design parameters, things may diverge really significantly um, so that, yeah, what a boat is or what a vessel is is very, very different at different scales. Um, Do you yeah, think we'll see tugboats coming in on a hydrofoil to navigate ships no, around? No, I, I think that, that's a great example is that, you know, Tugs need, you know, very, very high energy density, yeah. um, but they don't necessarily need to travel very far. So mm. perhaps batteries and electric with huge torque are appropriate. Um, whereas if you have, um, like with one of our clients looking at this sort of, you know, sort of sub 40 metres where, um, you know, uh, energy efficiency, not needing to refuel, silent operations, sort of low emissions, then yes, you might be looking at hydrofoils, um, wing sails, um, yeah, um, like hydrogen that you know is actually generated on board, um, sort of trickle refueling while at sea. You know that might be a really, yeah. but that's not going to get containers across the ocean. Um, so I think I'm not sure if that that answers your question, but it is about that divergence in um, it's very what. Yeah, you're quite yeah. nuanced about what different vessels will look like. Joshua, did you have something you wanted to yeah, add? It's a great give you a similar analogy because yeah. I'm pretty immersed in the aviation industry. There's actually over 400 different configurations of electric aircraft under development at the moment. 400. Wow. So when you compare that to how many actual aircraft are in commercial operation at the moment, like they all look like Cessnas at that size and they all look like Boeings and Airbuses at that size. Mm. Well, there's 400 different variants of propellers and motors and wings and things. So the electric opens up that diversity of thought and you get a lot of pretty crazy ones as well but there's definitely a bunch of those that will survive and will have their niche like uh, Andrew was saying like for the super short haul you know flying from Frio to the airport there'll be a certain airframe design that's great and that's true for boats too that this is great for you know a couple hours of fun on the water mm. um, and then for the multi-hour you know sh sailing at sea there's going to be different hull uh, propulsion combinations so there's definitely going to be this sort of initial almost like play field of, of electrification in watercraft and then there'll be sort of a some are better for certain applications than others and mm. somewhat of a, a down sampling again to the winners <laughs> but yeah definitely more diversity than just the plain old single hull ships it's so. amazing and chris that idea of you know obviously you're playing at the really luxury end of of creating difference and i imagine for a lot of your owners having a different looking vessel is part of the drive to show that status and that change in that world. 
how do you see that transferring to back, back to Carla's question just around, say, commercial vessels and containers and, and tugs and those sorts of things? Are you seeing an application or a transfer in terms of different types of vessels through that process? Yeah, I can probably answer this in a couple of different ways. So I guess, first of all, um, multi-hulls are being used across different um, sectors mm. of the um, fleet, the global fleet. Um, so obviously these are the first for super yachts, yeah. um, but it's already happening, uh, for instance, with the military, like I was saying, with Austal, with the trimaran, large trimarans that they do. Um, and the and the catamarans are very, I guess, similar to a trimaran yeah. as far as um, some of their functionality. Are not 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 as comfortable, but nevertheless similar. Um, they are very efficient as well compared to a, a monohull. Uh, so that's already being done across the fleet as well. So and, and I'll give you an example, like say wind farm vessels, for example, crew transfer vessels mm. um, that might go out to wind farms to inspect or transfer crew out to uh, oil rigs and things like that. In the Gulf of Mexico, they use 50 metre high speed catamarans that are, again, designed in Australia, I think by Incat Crowther, for example, um, running, you know, crew out to oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. So it is it is already being done. Um, but I guess a lot of this is out of the sight of the general public. Um, and it's out of the sight of the luxury yacht clientele that are, you know, cruising around exotic locations and, and nice marinas and things like that. So... Yeah, I think it's just a matter of time, really. But I think one thing, just coming back to what you're saying before about that nuanced approach, mm. that that's bang on um, the mark. I think, um, you know, for example, uh, a, a battery-powered vessel um, doesn't matter whether it's commercial or luxury. You're not going to be able to say sail from here to Tahiti, uh, or, and or you know here to Fiji, and necessarily uh, get the fuel you need along the way. So it's not going to suit a vessel like that. You're still going to need to rely, at least for the foreseeable future, on something like diesel for some of it. Yeah. Um, maybe augment it with some hydrogen and some solar and some battery. Um, you know, unless we see the day where somehow we can have a small, safe nuclear device that powers it, then you don't have to fuel it up at all. I mean... Mm. And Safe that's back to your point <laughs> to some degree, Andrew, isn't it? That the ocean is such a vast, wide space compared to some of our land that the distances in traversing mm. and finding spots along the way will become, you know, more really the obstacle to some of that technology. Absolutely. Yeah. A truly, truly interesting. What, what, sorry, just one yeah, other go, thing. Go, is go, probably, We've got time. And when you were talking before, Andrew, it sort of, I guess, popped into my head and also sort of concerns me a little bit is we're, we're sitting here we're understanding that there are going to be all of these, you know, uh, it's going to be horses for courses, mm. you know, different types of vessels or different type of aircraft are going to have different, you know, solutions. But what I think we need to be careful of overall as a, as a country um, or, you know, globally for that matter, is that there isn't a one size fits all um, uh, set of uh, rules or guidelines or, or regulations that mm. are applied that stifle us being able to, design those nuanced solutions to maximise it. I mean, the ultimate goal is to make things as a, more, as efficient as possible with as, as little materials as possible or reuse materials and then also to, um, you know, avoid emissions and, and so forth. But if someone comes in and says it has to be this percentage um, or, or and, and that's it, mm. um, you risk you know, it heavily impacting some areas more than others. We, we need to be saying, well, for instance, right now with trimarans, if you can make a vessel 30 or maybe 40% more efficient with the existing technology right now, 
So, you know, if we're talking about climate goals for, mm. you know, 2030 or whatever it is, you know, we, we already have some solutions. Whereas there's other industries that they may only be able to, f based on the laws of physics, might yeah. only be able to achieve five or ten. Mm. I think it's we need to look at the overall picture and we need to be able to um, optimise each craft as much as we can. And that's a really interesting point, Matt, and again, back to Andrew's introduction too, around regulation and the fact that, you know, we are dealing with something where so much of our, our world does sit within international waters and there isn't a consistent regulation across those things and spaces. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Anything that keeps you up at night worrying about that, Andrew? Uh, doesn't keep me up at night worrying about it, but it is a vast sort of expanse and perhaps a, a, look, I'm aware of um, someone made a comment the other day about um, uh, an organisation that's that's thinking at very, very large scale about um, ammonia-powered vessels and transitioning to hydrogen to sort of meet net zero goals for transporting iron ore. And, you know, when you think at a really large scale, you do realise that it isn't infinite. Mm. So although the ocean does seem like very large, um, certainly off Western Australia, much of it ecologically is like a desert. Yes. Um, there's very few sort of, you know, certainly in the northern half of the state, there's very few and it's quite a distance between ports. Um, so, yeah, although it is very large, it is very um, fragile and the ocean is just a phenomenally challenging environment in which to engineer and, you know, do anything basically mm. um, because it's moving and corrosive and um, and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, nothing that keeps me up at night but just appreciating the very unique challenge um, and opportunity out in our, our ocean and, yeah, being excited that in, in WA both on the engineering side of things but also um, – yeah, in our relationship sort of ecologically to the ocean and conservation that, yeah, there's many, many good things happening here that, um, yeah, can be good for the rest of the world if we advance them. It's amazing and it kind of was the, the point I know we're probably due to start winding up but um, my old dad used to always say the ocean's the last frontier and man will never, ever conquer it um and there is a bit you know our land-based activity is so human-centric i don't think we've ever lived in a time where humans literally touch every part of our land and our environment do you think we will see a time where man will conquer the sea in some esoterical way to finish our very broad conversation this morning actually i'll tell you so i'm a I'm a surf lifesaver and we had this sort of um, strategic planning session at the Surf Lifesaving Club where um, sustainability and technology was actually a topic. This is a pretty high-powered surf lifesaving <laughs> club. You know, the head of robotics at FMG was like there to facilitate. Um, but after, but there was a couple of us in the room that were like, you know what, there will be all this technology that helps with sort of safety and low emissions and looks after the environment and monitors people. Um but there's also going to be a bunch of us that go, you know, I want to go to the beach where there's no one patrolling, you know, no one's looking out for sharks, there's no technology, my phone doesn't work um, because the wild space is not only for humans but for all the other species and everything else. I think that's really, really important yeah. Um, that, yeah, there's places that we can get lost and not find our way home and that we, we do face, yeah, we do, you know, sort of face into those risks. Um so, yeah, humans conquering the sea. Uh, I, don't really, <laughs> I don't really like the idea. 
Yeah, I think conquering is a bit of a strong word, but I would definitely say better utilising. And I think, um, for instance, I think our Swan River is highly underutilised as far as a a method of mobility. You know, being able to eventually use wave flyers to duck across the river for a coffee, you know. Imagine that as a a beautiful way of doing it. You've got the the e-scooters clogging up the um, pathways, but the e Wave flyers are not really going to be in anyone's way, you know, just jumping on, scooting across, having fun. So I think, yeah, better utilisation of the underutilised waterway. Um, And I think um, the – just coming back to the – safety aspects as well because it's surf lifesavers and whatnot i mean i was up at broom and broom's an amazing you know beautiful beaches but you really appreciate how strong the tide is when you go out kayaking in the middle of the day <laughs> and by the time you're coming back you're like really working on the, working the upper body strength to fight the tide and then you got to pull your kayak like 200 meters up the beach because yeah. that's how far the tide's gone back yeah. in the couple of hours you've gone out so you really you know you got to appreciate that it's a much bigger machine than we are ever going to have the power to control or to conquer. But if you respect it and you work within its, you know, its tides and its you know, sea state, you could really make better use of it. That's so. wonderful. Thanks, Joshua. Winding up, Chris, anything you wanted to add on this very, uh, there's, I guess, there's, quite... Hu- there's, there's not much to add to that. I think, Joshua, the, the word is respect, you know, yeah. and I think it's respect as far as looking after the ocean, but also respect as far as if we're going to utilise it more, um, we need to respect uh how powerful it can be as well when it when it turns on you mm. know there's been lots of ships lost at sea over the years and lots of lives lost at sea over the years unfortunately so we still we've got to, you've got to respect it you mm. know it's a force of nature and uh but yeah i just think uh there's a lot more that we can do there's a, many improvements that we can make to mm. how we do it um but yeah got to respect the ocean absolutely and it a wonderful conversation today i think it's been different from so many of our podcasts in that we are highlighting a, a global opportunity to do some really amazing and different things from both the technology but also movement of people and the way that we live and embrace you know our global world but also i guess one of the really big industries where there are so many natural challenges and forces at play that restrict the development so yeah big thoughts and i thank each of you for sharing it and answering my slightly quirky questions this morning Um, We will wind up this morning. Our panel will stay around in the room. For those who have joined us in the room, thank you so very much. It's lovely to see you all and we hope you uh, enjoy a a pastry and a cup of tea later. Chris uh, from CloudViz, thank you again so much for uh, making sure that we're heard. Um, We're live on Facebook now. Um, The podcast will be live on Set the Month in Motion under any podcast station from Friday. And we look forward to next month's conversation, which again will take us on a completely different journey, but probably not to the ocean. So thanks very much, everybody.